for me. Well, we're back in Jonah, and we're going to be wrapping it up this, this morning. And it may, started making me think about a, a website I, I, I have frequented on occasion. It's called uh, You Have Been Swerved. And it's, uh, it's all dedicated to uh, good movies that have twist endings. Um, and, and, and it brings to mind one of my favorite twist ending movies is the movie uh, Sixth Sense. You all know the story? It's a, a, a troubled young man um, who, who says he can see dead people. And there's a psychiatrist who, who's, who's troubled himself and his marriage seems to be estranged and just seems really lost, comes to help this young little boy. And, and the story goes on. And, and you're thinking one thing, and at the very end, okay, spoiler alert, close your ears if you don't want to hear it. At the end, you, you find out he tells you, I see dead people. And you realize that the psychiatrist has been dead all along. He's one of those people. And so the whole, the whole story at the end, then you have to think back and like, oh my gosh, that all makes sense now. And, so, and you actually want to go back and watch the movie again. Because once you've seen the end, you're like, wait a minute. And you watch it again, you're like, man, I just got duped the whole time. And, and, like, we love that, don't we? It's like the old Alfred Hitchcock um, Twilight Zone episodes. Like, those always had a really good t- twist ending, you know, uh, and so on. And so we love that. However, one of the things I think we don't like is cliffhangers. Don't you hate cliffhangers? We, we love to hate them, actually. Um, because when, when we get to the end of a show... And it leaves us hanging, and it doesn't quite resolve. It drives us crazy. And then, then some artistic movie maker or TV producer wants to get artistic and leave it like that forever. Like I, I mean, like The Sopranos, I heard ended like that. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't ever into that show. But everybody was ticked because it kind of left everybody hanging. Uh, and, and, and he was being artistic because like that's real life or something. We hate that. Actually, cliffhangers are what drive binge binge watching. It's the new thing now, right? Well, we binge watch. And, I mean, we, we will stay up till 3 and 4 a.m. watching a show because a, every episode leaves us hanging. And we don't know. We got, let's just watch a little bit more. We'll find out what happened. You know? And then you've got to find out what happened after what happened. You know? And it just keeps you going and going and going. And, I mean, that's, the, that's, that's what happens there. And what's great is, or not great maybe, depending on how you look at it, Jonah, the story of Jonah is actually a cliffhanger story. We think we know what's going on. It seems a simple enough story. We've talked about this, and, and it's very often taught this way, that Jonah is a, is a, is a moral story. So it's about a, a man of God who was called to go do something, and he rebels. He said, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to disobey God. And he goes, and he flees to Tarshish. And, and then there was horrible consequences, and he ends up thrown into the ocean and swallowed by a big fish. But however, good news is, is he, he repents in the belly of the well. And so God gives him mercy and vomits him out onto the shore and, and sends him to go do what he's done. The moral of the story is don't be like Jonah. Don't disobey or bad things will happen. But if they do and you do disobey and bad things happen, if you repent, God will show you mercy and restore you. The moral of the story is don't be like Jonah, right? Problem is, is this chapter. Because if that was the story, if that was the story of Jonah, then at the end, Jonah, there would have been this huge revival. As a matter of fact, we saw last week uh, 120,000 plus people. The largest revival in the Old Testament had just occurred. 
And, and if the moral of the story had happened the way we thought, Jonah would have been celebrating. He would have been like, yay, yay, God, isn't he great? But instead, verse 1 here says that he was really angry. It displeased him greatly, and he was angry. And so all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute. I need to go back and figure out what's really going on in this story. And that's what we've said is that this story isn't just a story about be like Jonah or don't be like Jonah. It's really a deeper story. And we've said it's really a story about idolatry. And what drove Jonah to disobey the God that he served in such a radical way. And that actually, and so just real quick, because if you're new with us, we said that idolatry, um, you know, we normally think of it as going to a, to a temple somewhere and, and, and offering incense or something to some kind of wooden or metal statue. And that certainly can be. However, idolatry in the Bible is simply putting anything in front of or above God. So, in other words, looking to your own wisdom, competence, or some other created thing to provide power, approval, comfort, security that only God can provide. In other words, putting anything in front of God. So, but this book is really, so this book is about idolatry on one side, but it's actually about something better and greater. It's really a book about God and God who graciously calls and pursues idolaters with his grace it's a book about god's love and mercy and grace and so here in the last chapter we see the amazing way god calls idolaters back to himself okay in other words calling idolaters to repentance which we've talked about in this book as well to, to simply to turn back to him as god period and so the book of Jonah is a call to Jonah's heart. It's a message to him, but also for us. A call for us to return to the heart of God, which is genuine, excuse me, genuine repentance. So let's take a look at this, okay? So the first thing we need to do is we need to see the need to return to God's heart. The need to return to God's heart. And, and so... If you look in verses 1 through 3, let me try to pull it up in the right translation here. If you'll give me a second. Um, verses 1 through 3, we see Jonah's response to this whole situation. He says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is it not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish. So now we see the reason. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh God, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And that's where he's at. We see now... If, if you were wondering, if you've, if you've read this and you've, there's the debate, is chapter 2 a genuine repentance of Jonah or not? 
Because it sure sounds like it. We said he was very religious. He, he quotes numerous psalms and he says all these amazing things. But now we see for sure that that repentance wasn't, at least it wasn't complete. He's, he's prayed to God. God has uh, restored him. And now we see he's angry with what God has done. And he's going back to the very beginning. He's like, this is why I ran in the first place. And so his repentance wasn't real, and he was furious with God. Why? Because he knew, he knew things about God. He has his theology in order. He knows things about God. He knew that God was merciful to the guilty, compassionate on the weak of humanity, slow to become angry even in the face of grievous sins, rich in faithful love on those who are unlovely, willing to relent from sending judgment on those who repent. So he knew that about God. And so what's his response here? What's his response to God here? One, one commentator put it this way. It, it's, it's pretty much his him saying, it's either them or me. Or in other words, over my dead body. Wow. And this is what his idolatry has led him to. We mentioned what those were, his nationalism, his self-righteousness, his racism, and other things have led him to the point where he would say either to, to God, and his, audacious this is, to say to God, over my dead body. In other words, you, I would rather be dead than see you do what you think you should do. And so his prayer reveals how far... And he's praying to God here again. But it, it shows how far he really is from the heart of God. He wants to be God. That's what idolatry is. It says, God, I don't think you know well best. I don't think you know what's good. Because if you knew what I know, God, you would destroy these people. If you knew what I knew, God, you wouldn't allow these circumstances in my life. You wouldn't let that person in the checkout aisle have all those coupons you wouldn't let this illness happen you wouldn't let me lose that job you wouldn't let these things happen god i know better than you over my dead body brazenly rejects who god is and what god says and so what's interesting is that because this is the book of Jonah, as simple as it is, and, and as simple of a story that even a child can understand, it is probably one of the most brilliant literary works in the Bible. Because he's constantly using words and phrases and things to communicate his message in a, in a brilliant way. And, and, and one, notice here this word he uses here in verse 6. It says, it's translated his discomfort um, here and then uh, King James it's grief or another or other places misery now, this is the same Hebrew word which is used of the wicked wickedness of the Ninevites back in chapter 1 and of the destruction which God had threatened in uh, chapter 3 
So, in other words, the the author is using all this language to point to this miserable, horrible situation that he has now put himself in. It has equated Jonah, the prophet of God, with the wickedness and paganness of the Ninevites who deserve judgment. And so the question becomes, who deserves judgment here? And his idolatry has caused him to reject what everything he knew about God. His idolatry caused him not to celebrate God's mercy, but rather to reject it. And so he's left angry and despairing. He's left alone and selfish. He's left in his prejudices, his racism, his hatred. And he's definitely not able to love others or see their needs. At the very end here, we see that Jonah cares more about a plant than hundreds of thousands of people. And that's where our idolatry leads us. It leads us into ourself. It leaves us angry and bitter and discontented. It leaves us alone and selfish. And it also led him to... He's critical, judgmental, and self-righteousness. Say that I know better. But if you know better than God, you know better than everybody. And that is the definition of self-righteousness, isn't it? And then it makes you think forward to Jesus' day when he was debating and challenging the Pharisees of that day. And he said something like this, and you could probably apply it. You could apply this to Jonah himself. He said to the Pharisees that they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And in fact, though, at the end of all this, Jonah has caused his own words in chapter 2 to come true. The very center verse the equal number of verses before and the equal number behind it in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of covenant love. His idolatry has, has put him farther away from God than Tarshish. He needs to return to the heart of God. And so do we. And so the good news is is that God calls us to return to God's heart. And so we see the call to return to God's heart. And four times in this uh, this verb appointed here, where it says um, he appointed this plant. We see God appointed the fish. He appointed the plant. He appointed the worm. He appointed the wind. And so throughout, we see God working sovereignly all these circumstances to to bring uh, Jonah to a place where he might be able to see his idolatry, to see where he's at. So it's God who brought these circumstances. It was God who, in his great mercy, was working in good times, by the way, and bad times. If you notice this about this plant, God causes this plant to grow up, and, and it says it, and he did it because of Jonah's discomfort. The word that was used described the Ninevites, remember? And he's caused this plant to grow up so that he would not be in discomfort. 
God causes good things and bad things in our lives to bring us to a point of seeing our need to return to him. One, one uh, Scottish preacher put it this way, these are all the providence of God by which he intended to draw Jonah back into fellowship with himself. So God has worked to expose Jonah's idolatry. He's hurled storms, he's appointed fish, he appointed a plant, a worm to kill it. He's just constantly, he's hammering the drum, and he's hammering the drum in our lives as well. Nothing in your life is happening by accident. God, in Romans chapter 8, y'all know the famous verse, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to God, those who love God and call according to his purpose. What is, what is the good there? That we would be conformed to the image of his son, verse 29. He causes all things to work together, and we see that happening here in Jonah's life. And so, just a truth we need to hear is that our idolatry will never be broken until we see the depth of the problem. If we really are honest enough to look, see how deep it really goes, and then we can return to Him. Because otherwise, we'll be utterly powerless to stop it. And when we see God, we see God using, then we also see Him using God, Jonah's anger. He, he's He's, he's provoking anger in, in Jonah here. You see that, right? He's already angry. It's like he didn't need a lot of help here. You know, in verse 1, you see that he's really displeased. He's very angry. But then God raises up this plant and intentionally kills it to cause more anger in Jonah. Why? Anger is an amazing tool. Um, Eugene Peterson, he actually was the... Um, tr- tr- translator, paraphraser of the message. I've heard of that version of the Bible. Anyway, he said this. Anger is, most, is a most useful and diagnostic tool. When anger erupts in us, it's a signal that something is wrong. Something isn't working right. There's, there's evil or incompetence or stupidity lurking about. Anger is our sixth sense for sniffing out wrong in the neighborhood. So when you're, when you're angry about something, you need to listen to it and say, why am I anger, angry? Angry is what they call a surface sin or a surface emotion. And it usually signals something else is happening down below, under the surface. And, and so God is actually utilizing Jonah's anger as a call to him. Isn't that Interesting. And God is going to provoke you to anger at times. He's going to do it intentionally. We do it to our kids, don't we? They think so. I mean, I have to discipline my children. I have to tell them certain things. It provokes anger. I mean, it's just, if you're not comfortable with anger as a parent, it's hard. It's a hard go. It really is. I mean, they, you know, I mean there's this idea that Christians, are, everything's supposed to be like peaceful, and calm, don't rub the boat. I mean, like, man, are you kidding me? A good Christian home, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of yelling and complaining and going, there's a lot going on in a, a, a gen, you know, an honest Christian home, right? And so, so Jonah was angry. The anger itself wasn't the bad thing. I mean, we, we're told in the New Testament, in, in your sin, 
excuse me, in your anger do not sin. So the problem wasn't his anger. The problem was Jonah's heart set on the wrong things. He knew that the Ninevites would repent and would relent to show mercy. And so Jonah's anger and despair were symptomatic that his heart was misaligned with the heart of God. Jesus got angry. Was it sin? No. He flipped tables and he took his whip to people in, in the temple courts. Jesus got angry. The question is, is why are you angry? And, and is, is it a sign that maybe your heart is not aligned in the right places? Maybe it's a sign that you are. And God's call comes in the form of two questions here. Verse 4, the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? And then verse 9, he says the same thing. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? See, God is calling us. Always calling us. He's calling us through circumstances. He's calling us in the anger in our hearts, maybe the despair that comes up in our lives. And he's using all that to call us back. Return to me. Is your heart aligned with, with him? Or do you need to be called back? And so we see then the results of returning to God's heart. The results of returning to God's heart. And this, this, this story has a cliffhanger. It's, it, this is a, I mean, a nasty cliffhanger. If you like resolve and you want to know the end of the story, this is not your book. <laughs> Why would Jonah do this? Well, I mean, I would say, my opinion, we're not exactly sure who wrote this, but the author, and maybe a Jonah, was, wrote this and intentionally, maybe, maybe he got sick and died right before he could finish. Maybe, maybe something happened, you know, like that. But regardless, I, here's what I think. I think that, that chapter 4 ends abruptly with God asking him a question. Why? Because the book is not for Jonah. The book is for you. And it's for you at the very end to say, to ask yourself the exact question that he's asking Jonah. It's actually a common Jewish storytelling element. Jesus does it. We'll, we'll look at it in a minute. Jesus did it many times. But it's, it's to leave the, the story unfinished so that you have to finish the story. You have to re, You have to finish the story. You have to write the ending of the story. How are you going to respond to God's question? God uses this plant as the means to exposing Jonah's heart, and we're given the answer. We weren't given the answer that Jonah would give because we are supposed to answer the question. And so it makes us ask. What am I angry about? What do I despair of? Do, do the things that make me angry align with the things that make God angry? And of course, if I'm preaching this, this has got to shove into my face right before I have to preach it, of course. Um, last night, some things happened that affected my little kingdom of comfort. Russell's little 
uh, kingdom of wanting to do what he had in my little plan or whatever. Some things happened, some mistakes, some things I had to do, and I got angry. And of course, as anger does, it never always, rarely comes out in the right angle, you know what I mean? And so, of course, it came out all over my wife, who was complicating even the complications that had occurred in my little plan, my little comfort kingdom plan. And of course, I had to ask the question, Russell, why are you so angry? What are you angry about here? And I had to ask, is, is, this, a, is this a righteous anger? Or is it an anger that is the result of what's really in your heart? Your idols of comfort. Your little idols of your little kingdom. And things the way you think they should be. Or do we have what uh, Bill Hybels used to call a holy discontent? Because there's a good anger out there. There's an anger that when we look around and we see injustice, when we see people that are broken, we see the lost who need to know the name of Jesus, and it, and it rises up in us as discontented anger and says, we've got to do something about that. That is the kind of anger we need. So what breaks your heart? You know, is it tragic stories on movies or TV? Is it the disappointment and griefs in this life, which I don't want to minimize? Are you angry about where God has you right now in your life? You may not be willing to admit it, but are you really angry about where you are and what God has done in your life or what the prospect of your life is? Or... Are you truly, deeply heartbroken when you see lost people or people turn away from true joy? The other question is, do we share God's heart for the lost? See, here's the thing. If anything Jonah teaches us is that God is love. God is mercy. That's what he is. That's what he does. The, the whole Bible is about God who is love. And when we, we, in our idolatry, we get caught up in our selfishness and our pettiness, we can end up right in the shoes of Jonah, not caring about a whole bunch of people. Sometimes people closest to us. And so we see Jonah, and can, we can laugh at him because he gets all mad and pouty about a plant. It's like, are you kidding me, Jonah? It's a plant. But then if we back out of our lives, we can say, are you kidding me? It's just a mortgage. It's just, the, you know, we get all angry and petty about the little circumstances of our life, and it causes us to care more about that stuff than to care and love and, and, and be concerned for other people. So what is the result of turning to God? When we return to the heart of God, He becomes God to us. Did you hear that? 
When we return to the heart of God, when we come, we come to Him in repentance, He becomes God. We step off the throne. That's what it means to repent. It's saying, okay, I am no longer going to try to sit in God's throne and try to decide what is good, what is bad, what is I think is good for me, what I think is bad for me. And I'm going to say, it's what we say is trust. I'm going to say, here, God, I don't understand. I, have, I don't know why you're doing this. And he had good reason to say that. These people were evil. They did wicked, nasty, horrible things. And he didn't understand why God would want to show them mercy. And here's the problem. It don't matter. He's in charge. If he's God, you just let him make the decision. It's his call. We trust it. We, let, we rest in that. So first of all, he becomes God to us. And what he, so then, then there's a shift. And we start to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And then we can also begin to genuinely receive his mercy and grace for us. Because if I step off my throne a moment, and I really look at my anger, I realize the deep, desperate need I have for his mercy and grace. See, the thing about Jonah, as we see, who needed God's grace more? The Ninevites or Jonah? It's a good question. Who needed it more? Who needs it more? You? Do you you need it more than the Ninevites or maybe the Talibani or the ISIS? Maybe a a, a gang member up in North Jacks? Who needs God's grace more? You or them? And And then another, our bias, our prejudice, her racism becomes squelched because we know that it's God who has loved us even while enemies. He loved us when we were Ninevites. He loves us when we are Jonah. And by the way, cheer up. You're just like Jonah. His grace is greater than you could ever, ever dare dream. Jesus tells a story. I'll close with this. You know, I'm all very familiar with it, I think. In uh, Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. And I'll summarize it. The story is the prodigal son takes off with the father's inheritance, squanders it in wild living, and then, and then sees the, uh, he comes to his senses and, and comes back to the father. It's a great story of the returning prodigal receiving God's mercy and love. And guess what? The story's really not about that. As awesome as that is, and as many of us who were prodigals and they were, were received back to God in grace, we can really relate to that. But the story is not about the younger son. It's about the older son. Because when the father receives his son back in, in mercy and grace and, 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 and celebrates him coming back. We see his response. Let me find the right version here because I probably messed that one up too today. I don't know what happened. It's 28, right? It says, here, tell me if all this sounds familiar. 
but he was angry. <laughs> Sounds really, really familiar. He was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. In other words, I have worked for you, and this is the same vow that Jonah makes in chapter 2. I vow to you to make sacrifice to you. Remember that? Same thing. Say, I have, I have slaved for you. For what? Because I wanted to have a party with my friends. I wanted to be celebrating myself. But when your son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And here's the question. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. This is what the father wants. He doesn't want our slaving. He doesn't want our vows or sacrifices. He wants us to be with him. And all this and all that is mine is yours. So in other words, he was slaving for something he already had. And it is fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother is dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Here's the question. What did the older brother do? How did he respond? Did he stay outside of the party? Or did he come back to the father and rejoice with him? And that's the story of Jonah. Like, are you going to run from God? Are you going to continue running from him? Even as you run, so to speak, towards him religiously, slaving or bowing for him? There's different ways of running from God. Or are you going to return to the heart of the Father who loves us even while enemies and pay the ultimate price by sending his own son to die for us so that we could come home? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the story.